Ramakrishna, I believe, died of throat cancer. I think so. Um, pretty sure. This great Indian saint. And one time the doctor came and he needed to probe it. He needed to touch it to see how the throat was. And when he first touched it, then Ramakrishna, you know, quite clearly in pain. And Ramakrishna said, wait, wait. And they went into Samadhi and they said, okay, now you can touch it. And then, no problem. So he may have been realizing emptiness at that time or maybe he was simply utilizing his Samadhi and directing his attention elsewhere. My attention is gone, now probe all you like, no problem. You know? So part of it is simply attending, and we come back to this, my favorite Western mantra, for the moment what we attend to is reality. Even if it's fictitious, it becomes real for us. Right? And pain, when we attend to it a lot, then it becomes very real for us. And of course, pain, when it's intense, shouts at us and really catches our attention. So it's not so voluntary. But the end result is we do pay, pay a lot of attention and therefore the pain is very real for us. But the attention alone is not sufficient. It's also what makes it unbearable. Unbearable is that we're not only attending to it, thereby making it real, it comes into our field of experience. But I come back to this phrase in Tibetan, we closely hold on to it, we identify with it, we feel my pain, my knee, my stomach, my back, my mind, closely holding on to it, and then it really becomes unbearable. So, as I mentioned earlier, and now I'll mention just very briefly, more as a, in, the, in the mode of a reminder, <clears throat> there are two ways of really loosening up and dissolving, melting away this crystallized, reified, hardened sense of I am as this autonomous, separate agent. One is to probe right into it, do a biopsy, go right into it, and discover such an agent doesn't exist at all. That certainly shakes things up a bit, right? And so, vipassana. Or we're doing this we're right on the cusp when we're going into the awareness of awareness and probing right in on that which is releasing and, how do we say, inverting the awareness. So one way, one route to, to the realization of identitylessness, the very absence of there being this autonomous controller, is just to take the flaming sword of wisdom and go in and cut through the delusion. And so there's the wisdom approach, the classic approach, but there's another approach that doesn't yield exactly the same result, but definitely softens it up. And that is, instead of going inwards, going outwards. And that's what we're doing with the four immeasurables. We're expanding the space of our concern by expanding the space of our awareness, and thereby expanding the space of what is real for us. So as we attend to the sufferings of others, and we may do it in real life, I know, I think I'll leave this person anonymous, but one person... Um, has spent quite a, a number of years by now devoting a good deal of time simply visiting children in a cancer clinic, children with, children with cancer. Well, one way to, to attend to suffering is attend to actual people who are suffering and then offer them your best. So that then they become real. You're seeing them, you're engaging with them, you're talking with them, you're letting them speak, you're listening to them. And by gum, they become real, right? So one way... And I always find George's comment is kind of a touchstone here. It's good to meditate, but it must eventually, sooner or later, come out in the world. And there they are. There is suffering, and we attend to it. And so, by attending to the suffering of others, whether in actual life, like a children's cancer clinic, or so many other areas, pretty much the whole world is a theater of suffering, by attending to it, then our space becomes larger. And even though our own suffering doesn't necessarily become less, it has a larger volume. It may appear less because the space is larger. 
because we've just attended to somebody whose grief, whose pain, whose difficulties are far surpass our own, and suddenly it's not that ours is any less, it's placed in a perspective. And relative to this person, and oh, that person, and oh, that million people, and oh, that 500,000 people, suddenly the perspective shifts, and the sense of, I am so important, my well-being, my suffering is so important, my suffering is the most important, it gets a, a larger perspective. And so as we attend to, attend to and simply make real the reality of others' subjective experience, and in this case, their suffering, and attending to it, of course, arousing the yearning that may be free of suffering, we may also, in a very realistic way, identify with them. As for me, so for this person, and this comes up a lot in the, in the teachings on bodhicitta, attending to all sentient beings as if they were our own relatives, as if they were our very selves. In the exchange of self for others, imagine actually being the other person and then wrapping your mind around their situation, closely holding their situation as we have habitually, habitually closely held our own situation. And so it's the attending to and then the close holding, the close holding. Then the suffering becomes unbearable. So His Holiness was asked once, because His Holiness Dalai Lama, I would say from my awareness of him over the last just about 40 years now, he does encounter a great deal of suffering. Personally for himself, his life is certainly not bad, but the many, many people he encounters, I mean the stream of refugees coming down for now, what, it's really, it's 50 years, it's 50 years. And meeting these people individually and then knowing about it, knowing about it. He's in, and it's, of course, he's not just attached to the Tibetan people. They are his kin, they are his family. But he is very much in tune with the suffering of the world. And one was, someone asked him once, how can you maintain, maintain such a sense of cheer? Because if you've seen him, even by the way the media, let alone spent time in his presence, there's a lightness there, an ease of laughter, a cheerfulness, cheer, truly a joyfulness. And you... Anybody who knows him, you know it's not contrived. He's not putting on an act. And he's been with one of the great, uh, how do you say, Paul Ekman, who's one of the, he knows how to read expressions. Paul Ekman, when he was first met with the Dalai Lama in the year 2000, he came away from these five days of five hours a day and he said, I have never met in my life, I think it's almost a quote from Paul, he said, I've never met anybody who is so utterly transparent. There is just nothing sneaky, there's nothing contrived, it's just true. And what blew him away was, it's so good. There's such goodness there. But it's just straight, uncomplicated, sheer, flat-out, transparent goodness. And Paul said he'd never seen anything like that in his life before. Nothing comparable. Right? So someone asked His Holiness, with that type of joyfulness, lightness, joyousness, how can you maintain that when you are definitely so aware? of the tremendous travails of your own people who look to you and no one else. This is just a flat-out true statement. The, Tibetans, when they, the Tibetan people as a whole, who do they look to for hope that their, their human rights will be store, restored? They can really maintain their own culture. They may have freedom. Who do they look to? And I was in a, in a taxi ride. I hope, I hope there's not too many tangents. But a number of years ago, I was in Tibet. And I, wanted, I went in, right in Lhasa. And I wanted to visit a, a painter who lived about two hours outside of town, so got a, a Tibetan taxi driver, and he took me on this long, long trip out of town. Well, he quickly saw that I, could sp I speak Tibetan, and that I was a Buddhist disciple of His Holiness, as I think he checked me out and said, okay, this guy is not a spy. This guy is safe, you know? 
And then he just opened his heart. And this was after the passing of the pension lama, after the pa passing of the pension lama. And the taxi driver told me he was just, you know, he was a taxi driver. I think he's so representative of his people as a whole. There's nothing strange about him or unusual. But he said, as long as the pension lama was still alive, we Tibetans, and he was now speaking for his culture, his society, his race, he said, we Tibetans, we had two sources of refuge, two, like the sun and the moon, that we would look to with hope. There's still hope. One was inside, one was outside. The pension lama was in Tibet. The Dalai Lama had to be outside of Tibet. They all understood that. So we looked to the pension lama inside Tibet. Can you help us? Can you help us? And outside Tibet, Dalai Lama, with your international travels, your international relations, can you help? He said, we have only two sources of hope. Pension Lama died. Now only one source of hope. So if you can imagine, you see a little bit of emotion is coming up in my mind. Can you, we can't imagine, but you might try to imagine, what might it be like to be the Dalai Lama? Just in this way, to have roughly six million people looking to you more than anybody, not even any comparison with anybody else, they're looking to you. Can you help us? We're looking to you. Can you help us? And the devotion, I think, is really largely unimaginable. The intensity of the devotion is just... defies the imagination. What would it be like to be that person? To have six million people looking upon you with such intense reverence, devotion, and hope, and you alone on the whole planet and knowing you can hardly do anything at all to help them inside Tibet. I can imagine just breaking into tears and not, and not stopping, you know, not stopping for decades, just, just crying, and that's what I can imagine doing, just wishing I could help and just not being able to, and just breaking down and just never come back together again. That's what I can imagine. And yet, who do we see? Do we see weepy, weepy Dalai Lama? You know, I'm so sad, I'm so, no. Of course he has. He has down days. He gets sad on occasion. But that buoyancy he maintains, so I'm finally going to let the, the shoe drop. Somebody asked, how can you maintain that buoyancy, given all that I just said? And he said, wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom of emptiness. Insight into emptiness. It makes it bearable. The volume, the space of your awareness is large enough to hold the suffering of the world and not be collapsed by it. So, in our own little way. But I think this is the way. This is good. This is 100% good. And it's not hinging on some special metaphysical proposition. We don't have to believe this or that or the other thing. It's just flat out good, isn't it? Good. And so, we follow that path. I think we can follow with no doubt, no hesitation, no uncertainty. To cultivate this close attentiveness to the suffering of others, and then in our hearts closely hold them, as if they were our own family, as if they were our kin, as if they were our very selves, until it becomes unbearable, and then just arouse that compassion. Final point, and it really meant a lot to me, because one can imagine, in fact, I, what was it? I'm trying to remember, it was a question I Yeah, I did. I remember. It was about, oh, about 38 years ago with Gishigam Taige. I asked him, he was talking about bodhicitta and developing such compassion. And I said, well, we have the, the, the perfection of generosity, the perfection of ethics, right through the six perfections. But I said, if one really takes this practice seriously 
and attends to the reality of the suffering of others and dwells on it, attends closely, closely holds them in one's mind. And one really dwells there and starts to fathom it. And like a mushroom cloud, it just starts to expand and expand and expand. And one sees the sheer enormity of suffering in the world. I said, how are you not? And you feel it from the heart. There's empathy there. How is it that you're not then experiencing the perfection of suffering? Right. You opened... If the, the analogy is loving all sentient beings like a mother loves her child. Imagine having seven billion... That's just the human beings. That's not the other sentient beings on this planet. And loving each one like your child and then recognizing and then just start doing the math. How many are under the poverty level? How many right now have terrible diseases? How many are living in war zones? How many, how many, how many? And what person can stand that and not just flatten into a puddle of grief and melt away into sadness, infinite sadness? So I said, how, is that, how, does, how does this practice not lead to the perfection that is the just complete boundless suffering of empathy? And as I recall, he said, you can't extrapolate. You can't simply take the little and then imagine it's a lot more. Other factors come in. And years later, but I must say, in all honesty, I can't remember exactly what he said to that. I remember he smiled, and there's this lightness. He was an immensely cheerful man. And there was no frivolity to his cheerfulness. There was depth. This was Geshe Ngawan But years later, in 1992, I was with a team of neuroscientists, and we visited a yogi up in the mountains where I had meditated earlier. He was the senior, of, senior most of all of them. All of them. He had been up there off and on for like 30 years. Gen Yeshe Topten. He visited Tsongkhapa Institute. He'd been, he's been, he went to the West a number of times. But mostly he was the yogi's yogi. And he blew the scientist away. There was such warmth, such kindness, and just his smile. I think it was Cliff Saren took one photo of him and just this immensely benevolent smile just spread over his face like the sun coming over the horizon. And Cliff got that. He loves to show it. Just like, there's compassion. Look at this man's face. That's compassion. And so the scientists, all of them, with the exception of Francisco Varela, quite secular, they're not Buddhist or anything else, um, all neuroscientists, very decent people, very decent people, very ethical people, uh, but not Buddhist, that's the simple point here. But one of them, it might have been Cliff, I don't remember who, but someone asked this, this old yogi, this old yogi, he said, when you experience compassion, because this man had been cultivating it for decades, you know, he didn't have much else to do. Compassion, wisdom, compassion, wisdom. He said, when you actually experience this, this fullness of compassion, are you at that time, are you sad? Does grief fill your mind? And he said, no. No. That comes first. First, the attending to, and I'm going to fill in just a little bit, but not much because I want to meditate. First, the attending to the wrapping one's mind around and embracing others with their suffering. The empathy, the sympathy, the shared sorrow does arise. Yes, that has happened. So yes, this is why it's kind of unbearable. But with that sadness, then something arises like the phoenix arising out of the ash. Something arises out of that sadness. The sadness itself is empathy. And what arises out of it is compassion. And in that compassion, there's a vision of possibility. In the empathy, there's simply an awareness of actuality. And that can be overwhelming, unless it's coupled with wisdom. It really can be overwhelming. I actually know something about that. 
But out of that arises compassion. Compassion has the boldness and the courage and the vision to realize what is happening and to attend to the world of possibility and to aspire, may there be freedom. And in that there is a courage, a strength, a vision, a boldness lifts one out of the sadness and launches one or makes one poised for action to actually do some good in the world. So that's enough. Let's go practice. Let's not talk about more about it. Let's do it. And this, in this session, I would like to focus on the type of suffering that arises simply in the natural course of things rather than that which is humanly generated. Mindfully settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. And for a little while, calm, soothe, pacify the mind by way of mindfulness of breathing, relaxing with every out-breath.
and then arousing your more dynamic faculties of the mind, of memory, of discernment, of imagination. Bring to mind first, if you will, individuals and populations who right now are still experiencing both suffering of the mind as well as pain of the body as a, as a result of natural calamities, whether the earthquakes in Haiti, in Chile, in Tibet, <coughs> of flooding, and so forth. You have your own memories, your own awareness of what's taking place in the world. Let your attention alight where it will, and alighting there, attend closely. Attend, if you can, from the inside out. Actually imagine being amongst those who are suffering from such calamities. It's the basic elements of earth as an earthquake, water as in flooding, fire, and air itself, tornadoes, hurricanes, and other natural disasters. Attend closely until it becomes real for you.
returning to your own perspective with each in-breath arouse the yearning. May you be free of such physical pain and mental anguish, free of sorrow and fear. May you find peace. And with each in-breath, you may practice as before, if you wish, visualizing the pearl of light at your heart. Or you may, with each in-breath, simply imagine this burden of suffering gradually lightening, relief coming, the pain and suffering dissipating. Imagine the help that is needed arriving and being of good service. And imagine freedom. Imagine this possibility becoming real.
There is not only the suffering of fire, of heat, there is the suffering of cold. In some areas such as Mongolia and certainly other areas in Central Asia, the past winter was utterly brutal. Then the, the suffering of cold, and now as the winter passes, the prospect of abject poverty. As we were reminded several days ago, the poverty is not only far away in distant lands, there's poverty here. And for most, if not all of us, there is poverty in our homelands. Attend closely and practice as before to those suffering from poverty and all the, the sadness and challenges that go with it. Imagine all the help that is needed arriving and the poverty alleviated, the fear and anxiety fading away. Much suffering seems to come from outside, from the natural elements, the forces of nature. 
But there's also tremendous suffering in body and mind that comes from within. Not looking at this point as deeply as mental afflictions, just to the fact of being embodied. And closely holding to the body as mine. The sufferings of old age. Some indeed do age gracefully with little pain, little mental discomfort. But for many that is not the case, as we all know. Those aging in loneliness, with inadequate, inadequate care, aging in isolation, lonely and abandoned. There is the suffering of sickness and of injury, which comes to the young and the old, to those a day before who are healthy. Then crushed under the burden of physical pain, So often mental anguish and fear follow. Attend closely and arouse the heart of compassion as before.
And finally, in this lifetime, there is the suffering of dying and death itself. Again, of course, some die gracefully with little or no mental anguish. Some die with very little physical pain. But as we also know, for many that is not the case. Attend closely and arouse the heart of compassion. Now, for just a little while, expand your awareness in all directions, letting the field of your awareness expand outwards and outwards, excluding no one. And with each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. With each in-breath, imagine such freedom coming to each one.
then release all appearances and let your awareness for a moment come to rest in its own natural purity and luminosity. Let's bring the session to a close. Both during this retreat as well as on many other occasions, I've met with people, often one-on-one, who tell me that I'm not, I'm not one of those very loving people. That's something I really need to work on. Or I'm not a very good person, but I want to work on it. There's a comparison there, because presumably such people must feel they know other people who are more loving, and some people quite clearly are just quite flowing. There's just a warmth that just kind of flows right out of them, like, like heat from a furnace. So it's quite clear. Not everybody manifests in the same way. Not everybody behaves in the same way. Some people just quite spontaneously are gracious, they're warm, they're loving, they're affectionate. It seems to just flow naturally. Other people more reserved. More reserved. Reserve does not necessarily mean less compassionate. But when we, and I put myself in this, we, it is we, when we have such feelings as, I'm not like the Dalai Lama, I'm not like that very compassionate person, that very warm-hearted person, that very affectionate, I'm not like that, I'm more something not that way. We're identifying with that which veils our own compassion. We're identifying with that which obscures. And identifying with it, thinking that's who I am, then we think, oh, you see, I'm not very compassionate. Because we're just identifying with the crust that veils the compassion. So you want to get compassion from me, that is, 
what little I have, I won't be able to transmit to you. Not that you want, you'd want it, but of course you're not going to get it from me. You won't get it from somebody who is sublimely compassionate. Dalai Lama, he can't say, I've got so much, would you like a cupful? You know, he doesn't pass it out. You're not going to get it from anywhere else, but you don't need to. You won't get it from the meditation. You're not going to conjure it up like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. You're not going to get the hat of compassion meditation and pull compassion out of it. Oh, good, I'm glad I got compassion meditation because I just pulled compassion out. I really like it. It's not that way. The compassion meditation just blows off the dust. It blows off. It just erodes that which is obscuring, veiling, concealing our natural capacity for compassion, which is rooted in an impulse that I think none of us would de deny. Who has ever said, I really don't care about my own well-being or the well-being of anybody else either? Who can say that? I don't think anybody would say that. I don't even care about my own well-being. I don't care whether I get terribly ill, get hit by a truck. I don't really care much. My, I, I don't think anybody is that deadened. Or if they are, that's just one more layer. It's just one more layer. But that's extremely rare, if it occurs at all. So we all have that impulse of caring. It's innate, it's inborn, there's nothing we can do about it. We care, at least for ourselves. And then for, I'm sure, everyone here, it doesn't stop there. There are our loved ones, we certainly care about them. We don't have to work at it, it's already there. And then out to concentric circles, probably there are some, some people for whom we care less. But the practice is only to unveil that which is already there, to unwork. So this is really a matter of discovery. It's a matter of removing obscurations. That's all it is. So there aren't any unloving people. There aren't any uncompassionate people. They're just people with thicker and thinner layers of obscuration. So that's what this practice is for, just removing the veils. Okay. But I think it's not helpful. I think it's not helpful to place these categories upon ourselves, even if we're kind of crusty, and even if we're shy. It's very, some people by nature are shy. I was, my teacher just told, told me, get over it, basically. You know, when I was 26, I was very shy, very shy. When I was a kid and we'd had visitors, I'd, especially I remember staying at my grandparents' house. I lived there for about a year. They had a big grand piano. And I remember when visitors come, I was a little kid, but when visitors come, I would crawl under the grand piano so nobody would see me. <laughs> you know, just, just shy, just like, like I would be a little mouse. <laughs> I liked it under there. <laughs> And so that's my natural disposition. And then when I was asked to start teaching Dharma when I was 26, of course I didn't want to, because I was shy. And Geshe often said, oh, you will. You'll teach. You will accept. <laughs> Your shyness is just finished. You can stop that now. <laughs> so I don't appear shy much, but I still am. It's just that, you know, sometimes you just have to work around natural inclinations. And so shyness is not a lack of compassion or loving-kindness. It can be a sense of reserve. So, there we are. I think it's not helpful to classify ourselves in this particular way. I'm not a very good person, I'm not a very compassionate person, a very loving, kind, loving person. I think not so helpful. Not so helpful. Because we classify and then we reify. And then we just throw one more blanket over our heads. One more obscuration. So, let's not add more. Let's take off what's already there and not add more. So enough said on that.